Hey. Hi, John. Hi, Johnny. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Finally, about to start spring break, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Though this was the last week of the semester for us as well. So, it's my traditional Friday afternoon uh, beer. Oh, Bye. nice. Hello. Hey. Hey, Chris. Good. How are you guys? Good. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm pretty good. Yeah. Uh, good. Glad it's glad it's Friday, but. Yeah. Otherwise, okay. How, yeah. how was the how was the anniversary celebration? Yeah, good. We ended up going to um, Didsbury, which is like a really um, leafy, posh um, suburb of Manchester. Um, that, that, that actually a lot of academics live in. So as well as being like really nice and uh, English, it's also full of like hipster cheese shops and things like that yeah we got a very lovely picnic from some of the independent shops there and then we went um to the uh basically have a picnic in some of the very nice parks um how many how years we... were you celebrating chris you and reluca nine nine, nine. now aha that's um... a lot that's a long time So this week we're going to be talking about the Israeli elections and this is, as you may or may not be aware, um, the fourth Israeli election in the past uh, few years. There was two elections in 2019 and then one about this time last year as well. Each time a government has been uh, failed, has failed to form and largely because of polarization of ground one man, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, Prime Minister of Israel since this time, since 2009, and who has become a kind of polarising uh, political cleavage in himself in many ways. This election has resulted in a seat alignment um, in, in terms of uh, pro and anti-Netanyahu parties, which is not drastically unlike the other ones. Um, and there's already some talk about the, whether a fifth election will happen. I suppose Israeli elections now seem to function like um, an MCU movie in that half of the point is that they uh, provide a trailer for the next one in many regards. <laughs> so we're going to be talking through how all of Israel's many parties have, have done, whether there's um, any chance for a stable government to come out of this election and what the main issues other than uh, Netanyahu have been. Uh, well, you should also briefly say, none of us are Israel experts per se, um, but um, both Jonathan and I have been uh, uh, listening to Haaretz's Election Overdose podcast, which mm -hmm. was a kind of limited series. And so we're extremely grateful to um, Anshel Pfeiffer and Dahlia Shendlin. Yeah, I would like to very much like shout out to this podcast because this was um, unusual if you're covering um, international elections to have something which was so detailed and in English of other countries' um, yeah. elections to follow um, yeah. and kind of made you feel like you yeah. know, kind of there and having really up-to-date um, analysis of what was going on all the time. Yeah. So yeah, I would definitely recommend a lot of the kind of stuff they talk about in that will still be relevant post-election as well. So please do give that a listen. Yeah, um, yes. And I, I think also, uh, yeah. And obviously this will be a much shorter podcast than that series, which is about uh, 10 episodes long. 
Um, so um, to some extent, we'll be kind of giving you the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> but if you want more detail, um, <clears throat> that, that's completely available to you. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's just a, a fascinating election. It's a fascinating, fascinating. I like we say when neither of us are um, experts in Israel, but I think we both have a kind of sense that this is this is a country where we've become kind of like election junkies on it a little bit. It's got mm. a. I just find Israel has a weird kind of Israeli politics has a weird kind of energy, which I find incredibly compelling, and I can't can't stop um, can't stop kind of uh, reading about. Um, and this election was 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 no different. Um, just a brief note about the 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 kind of as we always do the constitutional setup that this election is happening in. Um, Israel has a parliamentary system. It's a unicameral parliament, the Knesset of 120 seats. Um, and just like the uh, Dutch election, which we discussed in the last episode, mm. this is elected in a single nationwide constituency. They're probably one of the few countries in the world that do this. Um, and they've coincidentally held their elections very close together. Um, the, unlike that election, which had basically a like no electoral threshold, um, we do have an electoral threshold here, which has sort of steadily risen over the years, it used to be 1%. Um, and it, at the moment, it stands at 3.25%. At I'm not sure any of us have been able to find out where the 0.25 has come from on this. <laughs> no. um, but I think the general gist of raising it um, to this, it was raised in 2014, was uh, to keep out um, a variety of small Arab-Israeli parties, um, which would have pulled below this threshold. They have largely overcome this by combining into the joint list, which we'll discuss a bit later. Um, but yeah, this is now have this 3.25% threshold, which does seem every election to result in a kind of uh, panic among the smaller parties of whether they're going to pass it or not. Um, There's often as well a lot of um, merging of parties in a few days before final nominations for candidate lists are withdrawn. Um, so that's been a, a big element in recent years too. Um, one of the interesting things about this election um, is, is the way in which Netanyahu has to some extent influenced the party system by um, setting his opponents against each other so that they don't merge lists um, and, uh, and encouraging his allies into into sharing lists so that there's more likelihood of mm -hmm. parties dropping below the threshold against mm -hmm. him which hasn't happened for um reasons that we'll discuss mm -hmm. later i'm sure what, what what's like the general takeaway if you had to put it in a like single phrase what you think um this election did for the political system or what it reveals about israeli electoral politics that's a hard question, I think. Um, but I think I, for me, it's kind of underlined the centrality of this one figure to the party system to mm -hmm. a large extent. And I mean, like Chris has said, a lot of his in, in other parties, his uh, machinations have resulted in the kind of shape of even in kind of opposition parties, how they've run in this election and stuff. And very much the media framing of it has been a lot talking about a um, anti-BB, pro-BB block, um, which have very little in common otherwise, especially the anti-BB block. Um, so yeah, I mean, I suppose if I had to pick one thing, I'd perhaps say that, and I'm sure Chris will mention other things that we'll have um, kind of a lot of discussion about today. 
Yeah. Yeah, um, I broadly agree with that. Uh, Israel increasingly reminds me of a country like um, Italy under Berlusconi, where the party system just becomes increasingly and increasingly shifted around one man. Um, and and um, the other thing I think the other thing that is one of the things that's always telling about Israeli elections is obviously they're often discussed in the fact in terms of the fact of how proportional they are. Israel has had a lot of Israel has had a lot of political instability in its history, and we're clearly in a very strong. Um, period of um, instability right now, given that no government has managed to last more than a year in the last four four elections. Uh, well, last three elections, I should say, um, because we don't know what the outcome is of this one yet <laughs> um, in terms of coalition formation, although I think we've probably got some guesses. Um, but Israeli society is itself incredibly complex and that complexity is also a great big driver of the party system um it's not simply a case of if they had a two-party system israeli a a majoritarian system life would be easy easy because even geographically the country is incredibly complex um extraordinary for um i mean i was just looking at this a bit before we came on air looking at playing around on google maps looking at israel that this is such a compact country i mean there's so much a lot of media uh, international media attention on the israeli-palestine conflict and i think we kind of often get forget just how small this territory is that israel and palestine together are probably about the size of wales or something where this kind mm. of incredibly long-running conflict is do, do anybody have any guesses how long it takes you to get on a train from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Yeah, it's about like 20 or 30 minutes. Well, you've only cut it there because it's 50 minutes. But oh, 50. It's <laughs> <laughs> hours, Andres. <laughs> but anyway, it's not that yeah. long. Anyway, it doesn't take very long. It's yeah. Like drive between the two largest cities in the country. This is not a big place. And especially, yeah. it, it's... And it's, it, it gets really narrow in places as well, the kind of strip along the ocean. And yet it does have these, um, more than many countries, is massively um, kind of diverse in its makeup and the divisions within its society as well. Mm. Yeah, and, and similarly, in terms of, obviously this is a country that, as everyone knows, is affected by um, a huge amount of internal and external conflict it's uh, it, it's only um it's only about 500 miles between um between jerusalem and baghdad as well <laughs> it's it's it, not only is it compact it's also you know the distances here really are not huge at all albeit obviously the politics of the region makes the distances feel much larger than they would do in mm. in in if these were in in Europe or North America. It's also it's also a very young country in the sense that the people who've arrived in the people so most of most of the people who live in Israel have been there you know maybe their second third generation Israelis mm-hmm. but not mm. more. And yeah. and there's continuous immigration into Israel. Um now especially from like Russia, 
Um, yes. So, so it's also, you know, it's a place of a lot of linguistic diversity, for example, and cultural um, heterogeneity underneath a single kind of political um, identity. That's also really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean it's ethnically complex in, in lots of ways. I mean, uh, so for, for, first of all, about 20% of the population is still, is still Arabic, largely speaking. That Arabic population itself is also quite deserved, uh, quite, um, that Arabic population itself is also quite diverse. It, for example, includes Bedouin people, um, particularly in the southeast. It includes um, the Druze, who are actually who are kind of interesting um, religious group who view themselves as Arabic ethnically, but and and their religion is kind of uh, kind of has origins in islam but they don't view it as being um islam um and and they have a uh, and they have a kind of loyalty to the state that is quite interesting so for example um i saw the results in a jews town where um in the golan heights where Likud got 40 percent of the vote and the Arab party's got hardly anything. Um, and there's also a, a not insignificant number of Christian Arabs as well. Um, so it's a, they're complex. Then of course, on top of that, the ethnically Jewish population is very ethnically mixed in terms of their origin. Um, it, it, you know, obviously a lot of the founders of the state were um, what Jews call um, Ashkenazi, which is um, people who originate from Northern Europe, but they're also, I think actually the largest group now is Mizhari, which mm -hmm. are people from from other parts of the Middle East um, and, and North Africa. And yeah. then there are the Sephardi who come from Iberia. Um, and, and so there's a complex ethnic patchwork um, and of course, the reasons why those groups came to the state of Israel is quite different as well. Yes. Um, so yeah. The, yes. The the Mizrahi um, uh, the Mizrahi migrations into Israel being more generally more recent and more to do with the foundation of the state of Israel and the fact that the um, the countries in the Middle East and North Africa um, where they were living became more inhospitable to them following the establishment of the state of yes. Israel. Um, and yeah. there is a kind of a, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in a bit in terms of Likud, but there is a, a history of the kind of grievance among this community against who what was the traditional like um, Ashkenazi leadership of the state, especially under the under the Labour Party in the early decades of, uh, of Israeli independence. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's, it's also a, a intensely religiously divided society. Um, so one thing we'll talk about in quite a lot of one thing that it's important to talk about in some detail is about half the population, somewhere between about 40 and 50 percent, typically pops up in public opinion surveys as viewing themselves as pretty secular. Um, and then on the other hand, there's the Haradi population, which um, is often referred to as ultra-Orthodox in English, 
albeit um, I, I believe the Haradi view that um, term quite negatively, um, who um, who believe in an incredibly intense study secluded from um, modern society. They're about 10% of the population and, and they have their own parties, which are very significant. Um, and then in between that, there are people from other branches of religious Judaism who are typically, who are, are, are less intense in their religious beliefs and practices. Um, so obviously all this together creates a, a lot of cleavages along with the, what has been the dominant issue in Israeli society, which of course is the security question because um, obviously Israel is a society that has been, since its foundation, dominated by conflict, both internal and external, um, beginning from the War of Independence through Yom Kippur, the Six Days War, um, through to um, conflicts with um, Lebanon, Entry into the Lebanese civil war, um, conflicts with Palestinian groups, um, having ISIS on your doorstep is never anyone's ideal. And it's a country which still is surrounded by countries which still to this day do not have diplomatic relations with it. Some do, some don't. So they have diplomatic, they have quite a good relationship now with Egypt, but they don't have diplomatic relations with. Jordan with Saudi Arabia, um, relations with Lebanon are incredibly bad for obvious reasons, and, and similarly with Syria. I'd be interested to know, Andres, as a relative, more, more so than the two of us, newcomer to um, Israeli politics, what stood out to you from, from reading about this election? Yeah, um, so what I thought was really unique about this election was the uh, the centrality of corruption, despite it being a relatively kind of developed and kind of institutionally solid political system, um, corruption in you know such kind of grave accusations of corruption against the prime minister mm-hmm. are rarely such a central part of politics. In I think I don't know, it's my impression. In, in more kind of institutionally um, solid countries. So this looks, yeah, as Chris said, it, it looks much more like Berlusconi's Italy than it does um, kind of a regular, well-functioning parliamentary system. That was one thing. And the other was um, the, the, the fact that this is the, like this is a, an election of this is an election that that doesn't resolve the major issue, which is um, <laughs> the formation of a stable coalition, and it's the fourth in a row. That is extraordinary, um, and there's clearly something going on between social divisions, electoral rules, and political strategy. Like those three levels are interacting mm. to create enormous instability. And the, the, the political strategy is basically Netanyahu trying to escape corruption charges. And the social divisions you've talked about and how they map on via the electoral system into party politics. Um, 
So instability and the centrality of corruption. And maybe those two things go together. We've kind of talked about that before in the podlet, how difficult it is to resolve the question of corruption for democracies and how quickly it becomes a just really toxic issue that puts a lot of pieces of the political system into motion without uh, without like a clear horizon of where um, where the conflict will end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. And one of the kind of well, one of the really odd things about this election is um, it, it at one and the same time confirms the dominance of Netanyahu and also his weaknesses. So, for instance, Likud, his party, have won by a fair margin the most seats. They, they've won about they they only won about twenty five percent of the vote, but that was enough to win thirty seats. And the party in second place, um, Yashatid, um, has has eighteen. So quite clearly, they've won the most seats. That thirty is a drop. Um, it, um, but it's a drop of seven seats, and but it's a change from the previous three elections in which there was a a challenger in the form of uh, a a grouping called Blue and White, who who uh, in one election beat Bibi, in another they drew, and in, a, in another they came very narrowly close. So there was a kind of horse race aspect then. There's no, there, there wasn't really much question throughout the campaign that, that particularly once it kicked off fully, that Netanyahu, Netanyahu's party wasn't going to be the, the winner in terms of seats. Um, so, uh, and, and, and for someone who's been in power since 2009, that's pretty incredible. Um, and in part, that's, in large part, that's because of the, the security issue, uh, because essentially, um, so historically, Israeli politics was divided most of most of all on on security. So the left right spectrum in Israel was really a spectrum that went from dovish for, to hawkish uh, on one one and the other, and that's still uh, to some extent true. But what's happened is that the dovish end of the spectrum ha- um, that was particularly associated with the Israeli Labour Party has. Has suffered hugely since the failure of the peace process in the 1990s, and the um, second infidata, um, which I, I think I probably pronounced that wrong, but <laughs> because I always manage to misspell it in exciting new ways. Our usual can... disclaimer, I feel, in this podcast. <laughs> Sorry, yes. pronunciation. So since then, the Labour Party has died away, um, and. And there have been things that have attempted to fill its place, but um, in the long run, Likud has become the, has remained as the dominant force in Israeli politics. Um, and, and so that puts, puts it in an interesting position and that one and the same time, it's not easy for it to form a majority, but it's, it, but it's always going to it, but because of its centrality within the system, it, it allows, it it it, uh, it makes it easier for corruption to kind of go away, go about unpunished. 
And Bibi has always kind of had a, a stink of corruption behind him. A lot of these accusations are very old. There's a, a, actually a great article from um, a couple of years ago in the Washington Post, which I very much enjoy, which is very telling about, um, about Bibi's personality in some ways, which um, is... Uh, so it's, it's an article about um, how, how Bibi... Um, when he visits the White House, which of course he did frequently under Trump, he's been noted by the cleaning staff to bring very large bags of dirty laundry with him. The reason for this seemingly being because one of the perks of having a free, uh, one of the perks of visiting the White House as a foreign leader is that the White House will wash your laundry for free. <laughs> so, seemingly, the Netanyahu's are going to visit the White House with huge amounts of laundry just to get, uh, just to have cheaper laundry bills. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like a student going home to parents with a load yeah, of washing. Like, exactly. Uh, <laughs> And it's kind of, you know, obviously Benjamin Netanyahu can afford to wash his laundry, but um, he, th th there's obviously, it, obviously this is a man who in enjoys the perks of his job, however, however menial, menial they are. <laughs> yeah, and I think, yeah, definitely one of the things that this election and the previous three have been about is that he's, uh, enjoyed the perks of his job a bit too much, um, has become yes. involved in a lot of corruption scandals, and yeah. his kind of key like his the thing he cares about above all else now is passing a bill which will grant the prime minister immunity from yes. prosecution. We should mention at this point as well that he is currently under free indictments, so it's not just a kind of theoretical corruption. He is mm -hmm. literally he is literally on trial mm -hmm. as we speak. Um, and banned by court order from holding any ministerial position apart from the prime ministerial <laughs> office, uh, um, um, which uh, a lot of Israeli prime ministers in the past have combined their position with being defence minister, for instance. Mm -hmm. so, uh, um, so he, uh, so he's very much in a position. Uh, so yes, it's it's very clear that things are now um, coming to a head for him. So yes, for, the the thing that he desperately wants more than anything is immunity from prosecution, and that has been a key driver mm -hmm. of politics in Israel in, in for the last uh, well now three. And this will be the fourth election campaign. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. And if we have another election, possibly a fifth. Yeah, I mean, um, and he's, he's happy to have as many as he, we could possibly have, I guess, until he achieves this, basically. Um, mm. I think it's important just to think, think about this. this uh, the Netanyahu is a figure, and I think that from all of our politics, is not someone that we're particularly well disposed to, um, mm. and is, is in many ways a not a very pleasant character but is is also something of a kind of political evil mastermind if we were going to use just that um, the very fact that we're all referring to him as bb um which is a kind of semi-affectionate nickname for this this character um is also kind of i think a testament to that fact um this is similar for like uk listeners to the fact that everyone calls boris johnson boris yeah. yes he's very charismatic he's very good at 
um, polarizing people. He's very good at. Um, he's inc he's incredibly good at. Um, uh, uh, he, uh, good rhetorically, and he's a ma a master strategist. Um, who every election he seems to do something to surprise. Um, and, and we we discussed this um in the weeks to run up in the run up to the election in our little group. He he has fantastic election ads as well. Mm -hmm. I I that's a particular favorite one of mine where. Um, where he turns up at a couple's door um, in a previous election campaign. Um, they're, they're going out on a night out and they need a babysitter and he turns up at the door and says, oh, you need a babysitter? I'm a babysitter. <laughs> and, uh, and basically the point of the ad is, oh, you want to trust your kids with BB over anyone else because BB will keep them safe. Um, and... Uh, the other candidates for office will not and of course mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons no doubt why he continues to be successful is people believe that he's competent on the security issue mm -hmm. and, and and it's very in a certain sense in a society it's very it's almost difficult for, you know obviously the israeli-palestine conflict is incredibly complicated and there's lots of different sides to it but but broadly speaking it's broadly speaking, people value security incredibly highly in any society because because it's a kind of hierarchy of needs thing. First of all, you need you want food and water and shelter and blah 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 blah. Then you want security, and then you start uh, caring about things like is my political system corrupt, um, gay rights, um, you know, all all the all these sorts of things that mm. um, Netanyahu has become controversial. Yeah, I think we talked about this in the El Salvador episode, actually, didn't we? That the um, that it, on some level, in places that kind of uh, the fact that Bukalele is uh, uh, more forceful than others on ending uh, sort of criminal violence was more important to people than the fact that um, he was showing these really authoritarian tendencies. And I think, yeah, in, in Israel, we see a kind of similar thing that people will, in many yeah. cases, I mean, the, as much as people in, um, and this may, it may be true in the present day that Israel is not under the kind of threat that it was upon its foundation, but in the Israeli psyche, there is memory of the, the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War which were literally attempts by its neighbours to invade Israel. And that has led to the um, horrible situation we have at the moment of the continued um, occupation and the fact that it is really hard for um, an Israeli politician to put forward a proposal which will lead to peace and disengagement mm. at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, and as well as the kind of questions that are now dominating as well around whether a partner for peace even exists, mm -hmm. um, because... Um, we'll probably talk about this in the future when when um, they have an election. But Palestinian society has itself become incredibly divided between two camps, um, one of which is more, much more hardline than the other. Um, and and although Israel is now um, is now a much more secure country than it's ever been in many ways. It's also a country in which there are still regular rocket attacks on it. Um, there are 
attempted kidnappings um, and and where the borders run very close to some very unstable um, countries with um, a very unpleasant things happening in them. Um, so it's not surprising that the security issue still has the strength that it does. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but we should probably, I mean, we literally probably could talk about Benjamin Netanyahu for several episodes, let alone just one. Um, but maybe we should start, um, maybe we should move on a bit to the other parts of the Israeli party system. Um, before we just, end up. Just, be, just before we move on to other parts, um, mention how long Netanyahu has been in power. Oh, I think we have. We've, um, oh, we have. Oh, yeah. Yes, we so have. He's been said... in power since 2009, but then he enjoyed. They was 96 to 99, I think I want to say. He was also prime minister. Um, yes. And, and he's been a, he's been, even in the intervening period, he's been around in various mm-hmm. ways. Um, when Ariel Sharon left Likud to set up, um, to set up his centrist Kadama party, um, he became um, opposition leader essentially for a number of years. Um, he, I think he, he served as finance minister at one point as well. Um, I think possibly prior to when he was prime minister. But yes, he's been he's been kicking around the Israeli political scene for a very long time now, um, uh, in a in a way that yeah, in a way that few other leaders in the world have. Um, but, but yes, we should. So yeah, we should broadly talk about the other divides in Israel, the other kind of parties. Uh, so along with corruption and Netanyahu himself, um, broadly speaking, the other big divide in Israeli society, which in many ways is now becoming bigger than the traditional left-right divide, is the question of secularism. Uh, versus um, religion. So on the one hand, we have the Orthodox parties, um, Shas, and the United Torah Judaism. Um, and then we have um, the sec- then we have a series of secular parties. Um, obviously, the parties of the left are in this camp, particularly Meretz, which is the more radical left-wing party. Um, but uh, Labour is in that camp too. Um, then there is Yeshatid, which is kind of a centrist secularist party, but has kind of ended up in the, which is broadly in the centre left block now. Um, and then there's also secular right wing parties, particularly um, Yisrael Betanyu, um, the um, which is a very interesting party in all sorts of ways. You know, it'd be good if you could um, you could tell a little bit about specifically how this has um, played into this election, because, yeah, I do know that this has been an issue for quite a long time, and it's an issue that um, Yeshi yeah. played on quite a lot, is the um, the fact that the military has... The, the, sorry, the, the um, Haredi community has a exemption from uh, serving in the military as well and mm. receives state subsidies for to um yes yeah so it's it, this is a complex issue in 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 many ways but um but a, a long long running one um that 
has become increasingly fought in Israeli society. So, as I mentioned, the Haredi um, ultra-Orthodox community um, has a uh, has has um, two uh, sizable um, parties, um, Shas and the United Torah Judaism. They don't really differ much, except on ethnic lines. United Torah Judaism is is broadly uh, an Ashkenazi party, and Shas um, is a more Sephardian Mizrahi party. So, um, and they've often in the past been hinge parties. Um, um, Shas has been in government almost constantly since its foundation in 1984. Um, it's formed governments led, it's been in governments led by the center left, it's been in governments with Likud, and it's been in governments led by um, the centrist Kadaba party as well. Um, it's only had in, in that period since its foundation, two periods when it was outside government in, in 2003, um, and then again um, later that decade. Um, so because of that, um, it's, it, it, it's red lines are broadly the maintenance of the special rights that Haredi, Haredi Israelis have, um, which are, as Jonathan says, broadly um, broadly um, special benefits and exemptions from IDF service. They've also become controversial because their views are extremely socially conservative on a bunch of issues. So for example, neither Haredi women, uh, neither Haredi party has ever ran a woman for office um, because they don't believe that that is a, a that uh, women should be, um, should be politicians. Um, and they um, have what are by the standards of most Western countries, pretty extreme views on LGBT issues. Um, in fact, for a long time, they didn't even want, uh, they didn't even want to allow secular marriage. So the idea of secular same-sex marriage, for instance, they oppose very strongly. Um, despite the fact that poll after poll shows that a pretty sizable majority of Israelis now, um, sometimes even as high as 80%, support um, bringing in same-sex marriage. And another thing that's been um, a cause of irritation to Israelis and uh, Israelis is that um, public transport doesn't run on Saturdays because that is Shabbat, the uh, Israeli holy day, and the ultra-Orthodox are um, uh, ultra-Orthodox religious views say that uh, tr traditional Jewish religious views say that you shouldn't work or even travel um, except by foot on on um, on the on the Sabbath. So that's obviously having a kind of big impact on people beyond the Orthodox community as well, as well as kind of linking into economic issues are very much a tertiary issue in Israel because of all the other issues that are being debated. But there's a kind of, uh, but Israel has very high cost of living that has been increasing in recent years. And I, I think there's a, a, a sense of we, of my taxes are going to, 
to people who who aren't contributing to the state <laughs> um quite frankly even amongst relatively center left voters um um and so this has been so this be this has provided support for Yeshatid, which is a party that comes from the secular center, which has been a kind of long running um, part of the Israeli political spectrum. Yeshatid is very identified with its leader, uh, Yelapid. One of the things that you'll probably notice as we start talking about more and more parties is that a lot of the parties were literally founded by the their, their current leaders and party political parties in Israel have become increasingly um, personalist in recent years. And, um, Yeshatid, um, which has come second in this election and has been a long running party, is very identified with Lipid, who is himself the son of the last leader of a previous um, very secularist centrist party by the name of um, Shinyu. Um, but other parts of the political spectrum have also seen kind of rising rising secularist tensions. So Yisrael Betanyu, um, it is a party founded by Avigdor Lieberman, who um, he was born in, in what is now the Republic of Moldova, which was then part of the Soviet Union. Um, his party was... Uh, built by him to represent the interests of uh, emigres from the former Soviet Union in the 1990s, who are still who um, supports it disproportionately. Um, they typically have pretty nationalist views and, and, and on questions of, for example, Arab-Israelis. Um, they have sometimes even been positioned to the right of Likud. Um, but they are also quite secular because, of course, Jews from the Soviet Union ended up leaving, leading pretty secular lives for fairly obvious reasons. Um, so while it combines a kind of interesting position in the Israeli political spectrum by being both very nationalist and very right wing and being very secularist, um, so uh, that has pushed pushed Lieberman, who previously was a very close um, Netanyahu ally. In fact, at one point, literally worked in in the nineteen nineties, literally worked in the prime minister's office um, before he became became before he ran for office himself. Um, it, it has helped push him away from Bibi and towards the anti-BB opposition, and that's now part of the block. Um, and it, so, yes, it's a, it's a kind of question that's kind of dividing the spectrum quite clearly. That itself has pushed the Orthodox parties closer to BB as well as the fact that Shas in particular has been radicalizing its position on the security question. Um, because Bibi could always be trusted to deliver on um, on red lines for people who are are loyal to him, so that's situated the Orthodox pretty strongly within his block. And while historically they were willing to work with the left, 
that um, that now seems to be basically impossible for um, either side to contemplate. Um, so, yeah. Um, and, and this has also been made um, come up again over the last year due to coronavirus, because the Orthodox, the Orthodox community has been, so a component at least of the Orthodox community, it may not be the majority, but there's a, a very sizable number of um, Orthodox uh, people in Israel have been blatantly ignoring lockdowns and coronavirus rules um, because of course, Orthodox religious law, in their view, goes above secular law, and Orthodox religious law says that you have to perform certain practices no matter what. So it's not been uncommon to see, particularly in big Orthodox towns like Jerusalem or um, B'nai Brak, um, very sizable gatherings of Orthodox people, um, weddings, funerals, um, all completely against uh, against um, Israeli coronavirus laws, and the government and the state did very little to enforce those rules for the Orthodox community. Um, the, this, of course, this of course created more tension in public opinion. Um, particularly because obviously that resulted in in surges of coronavirus amongst the ultra-Orthodox community themselves. Um, so there was a sense that they were endangering the rest of Israel. Um, and, um, and eventually the government was forced to up its enforcement, albeit it was fairly soft, and the result was a series of orthodox riots um, with burnt out buses and attacks on police, um, which has obviously left a, a further bad taste in the mouth of the kind of more secular end of Israeli society. And of course, the other way that coronavirus has played a big role in this election is that Israel is by a pretty long way the uh, most, the country which has um, delivered the most vaccinations. Um, and is now uh, uh, quite a bit over 50% of the population having received the vaccine and one of the first countries where life uh, where life is returning to normal because of the vaccine, I should say. Obviously, there are countries elsewhere in the world who, through different strategies, have managed to make life fairly normal again. But this is one of the countries where they, whatever we say about the uh, previous handling of the coronavirus, the vaccine rollout has been a, a big success and has massively reduced the uh, the numbers of cases in Israel. Um, this is clearly something based mainly which we can say from how hard he was pushing it in election ads and also from the fact that they clearly wanted to time the election to coincide with this, that um, Bibi and Likud were hoping that the success of the vaccine rollout would uh, gain them um, some seats. Um, this hasn't happened, though. Um, I was wondering mm. if either of you had any ideas on on why. I'll, I'll let Andreas go first, just in case. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not quite sure why why that's the case. 
it's fascinating though. It's really, it's really interesting that a, a politician would want to um, kind of attach their political fortunes to, a, to this public health um, push, this public health drive. That's interesting because it tells us maybe what might happen um, in other countries, right? Whether whether similarly successful uh, vaccination drives, right? So that's mm. that's the first kind of comparative lesson I think from that, and then that it wouldn't work um, for for Netanyahu that it would or, that it would kind of not produce the bounce he was expecting is also really interesting. It's hard to I I, I don't know how much this is a this this kind of lesson will travel to other countries because of the particularities of Netanyahu's corruption scandal, but also the fact that it's the fourth election in two years. And probably that also kind of like subtracts from his popularity because people get fed up um, from like multiple elections happening. Um, and, and, and also for them not being kind of conclusive, right? This notion of like politics is, is kind of like just uh, kind of a show, a one-man show, I think that also detracts from him. Yeah. The third thing might be something that you guys were talking about earlier on, which is the relative importance that people, that citizens um, will attach to to health or to, to public health programs. Mm, there, maybe there's, an, exp- maybe there's a, an argument or there's a feeling that this is the government's job anyway. <laughs> Um, why should we reward someone for doing their job um, at such an essential level, which is just procuring people's health? Um, I don't know. It, it, it's, a fa- it's a fascinating um, set of events, though. Yeah. Uh, on Just on the election fatigue point, Chris, briefly, it's worth noting, actually, that this is the lowest turnout election since 2013. So, um, and that's despite the fact that Israel has been pretty pretty good on keeping people um safe in terms of they were the one of the first countries because of the fact that they've now had two elections under the coronavirus pandemic so they were were actually also one of the first countries to hold an election um with kind of serious coronavirus um prevention um so um yeah so some of that election fatigue is certainly setting in it may may also be one thing that's hit liquid too because traditionally liquid areas are amongst the lower turnout areas in the country i haven't seen any analysis of this yet so i don't know for sure but i wouldn't be surprised if um because liquid voters already typically turn out in lower numbers that means that they that possibly they've been hit slightly and 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 that might also be one of the reasons why some of the smaller parties have perhaps overperformed what was expected before the election um and just just on the vaccine point very quickly just to mention that although although like um the the israeli government has 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 been extraordinary in its capacity to reach its own citizens it's been highly criticized for not vaccinating people in the occupied territories Mm. and actually only providing a hundred thousand vaccines to palestinians who work in israel and and not going directly there in fact i think the palestinian authority has received the vaccines from the covax initiative and not from the israeli government which is um first first, you know it's it's pretty controversial and the other thing is that uh, the the part of 
part of the vaccine effort included the rollout of what's called the Green Passport, which is an, an electronic app and also a piece of paper that shows that you've been fully vaccinated and gives you access to more, that gives people access to more um, services, such as like going to the gym, for example. This has also been kind of controversial in some sectors of society, is generating a divide between who can do what in, in society based on whether or not they receive the full vaccination, which may be just down to luck in some cases. So just, sorry, yeah. just wanted yeah. to include that. The, 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 yeah, All, yes, I, I think I might be right in saying, I think it's true that Israel has said that when its vaccination program is over, it will donate surplus vaccines to to the Palestinian Authority. But obviously that puts it on nonetheless on a kind of greater lag than Israel. Um, but yes, there's certainly complications there. Uh, one one question as well, um, in terms of the vaccine stuff as well, but, um, in the UK, we have seen a very clear vaccine bounce in the polls for the internal government, for the government. We, we are um, one of the fastest vaccinating countries in the world right now, and the vaccine programme has been, is seen as, success, as a success. Um, it's kind of telling that even my most hardcore um, partisan Labour friends are like, oh, I guess the government's done well on the vaccines. <laughs> so clearly, um, yeah, people who are like literally the government, who were a few months ago were, were literally saying that the government had killed 120,000 people, which, um, yeah, um, uh, so, you know, have not been praising the government until now or that it's coronavirus. Um, platform. I think part part of the issue here is probably also the aftermath of how badly lockdown went because um, because of the issues with the Haredi and um, it's sometimes difficult to turn around a very strong, a very strident view on how someone is performing on an issue. Once people get in, get into their mind, what that issue get into their minds, what an issue is. Whereas here, the public were like, "Well, I guess the Conservatives have had problems with the with the pandemic, but it's a really hard thing, and like, and 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 we'll give them the benefit of the doubt." Um, Israeli public opinion seemed to lean more strongly in the earlier phase of the pandemic towards. No, you have screwed this up, um, and, and it's absolutely your fault. Um, uh, the other issue going on here may well be that. Um, so we've seen in a lot of countries bounces for uh, bounces during the pandemic for incumbent governments, almost seemingly, regardless of how well the government is doing. Um, but um, in others we haven't and it seems to me just casually looking through it that it might be the countries where leaders were most polarizing before where coronavirus bounces have been kind of most limited so uh, so it may just tie into the fact that readings of Bibi were all, already so extreme that 
even a very good vaccine program couldn't change people's mind on him. So the other big divide in Israel beyond the religious one is a kind of very stark cleavage, of course, between the ethnic Jewish um, majority and the ethnically Arab minority, particularly. um, And this is very clear geographically. um, Arabs live um it lived broadly in towns in the north of israel um which are almost typically homogeneously arabic um so um so they're fairly socially divided too the um arab areas are known have very poor public services they um uh, uh, there's been, for example, there's been a recent spate of murders, which is, uh, as I understand it, caused a lot of upset in the Arabic community um, and has been linked to the fact that the police don't typically um, police Arabic areas very heavily. They're very poor. Um, obviously, there is um, some level of discrimination. Not all Arab residents in Israel have citizenship, but a sizable number do, so much that um, there has been representation in the Israeli parliament, in the Knesset, for um, Arabic parties uh, almost since the start of the uh, start of Israel. Um, But they have had limited involvement in 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 governing the country i mean this this may be uh there was a signs i think recently that this was uh changing a little bit um in terms of the, the last election the joint list which was an alliance of currently there's four israeli arab parties yes. yes yes four um yeah which had done quite did quite well in the the set in the 2020 elections and actually recommended the uh, blue and white centrist candidate um, Benny Gantz as prime minister um, and looked set to be possibly involved in some sort of a arrangement, maybe offering outside support to the government. Um, Obviously, this did not happen because um, uh, Netanyahu managed to lure um, Benny Gantz into a national unity government. uh, In part because... um... The, the the anti-Netanyahu block at the that election had a very thin majority. Um, it was a very heterogeneous block, as this one is. Um, but the division that actually ended up popping up that caused the, caused the problem was two MKs from within uh, from within Gantz's party and. Um, one MK from within what was then the Joint Labour Moretz list, who is actually a member of a, a third party, um, it, it basically said that they wouldn't support a government with Arab Israeli support, even if that party was outside the government officially. So, um, 
so that meant that it that it had, didn't have a majority even with the joint list. <laughs> so that was one of the things that um, caused the move towards mm -hmm. the to Yeah. Also, also the, and I think the the pandemic was also used as a as an kind of excuse to form this government as well, mm. um, wherein Gantz was supposed to be uh, a kind of alternate prime minister, and uh, Netanyahu was supposed to hand over to him um, this October, I think. Um, Netanyahu, who obviously didn't want this to happen because he needed to um, pass his yeah. uh, immunity law um, and kind of torpedoed the government sort of in last uh, last December. Yeah. So the, so the coalition agreement involved a lot of kind of complex safeguards that were supposed to stop this from happening. So in essence, the there was a law was put into place that um, made it. Um, very, very difficult to dissolve the Neset for this particular um, term, but it had one loophole in it, um, which uh, um, which was that if a budget failed, then the government could be collapsed, and and hence, therefore, um, the elections held, um, and so. Yeah, Netanyahu engineered a situation at the end of the year, uh, at the end of last year, where a budget could not be passed. So therefore, um, the government could collapse and he could have another election. Um, but yes, so uh, the joint list, the joint list is a kind of interesting heterogeneous beast. Um, it ranges from um, so uh, one of the major parties in it, Hadash, is actually a kind of uh, is a basically a far left communist party with kind of anti-Zionist views, but which does bring in some some Jewish activists and and voters and members and has quite strong feminist views. And then there's, for example, Balad, which is an Arab nationalist party with kind of controversial links to Qatar. Um, that um, uh, and that has in the past been explicitly anti the existence of Israel, um, which is quite controversial. Then um, Tao, which is kind of personalist party, and um, Ram, who are also uh, who are linked to the Islamic movement in in Israel um they're very socially conservative kind of softly islamist they're not um they're not uh, particularly they're not extreme in terms of how we might also think think of some other islamists in international politics um, but they are very socially conservative on questions of lgbt issues for instance for um so for their their leader has in the past um, seemed to support um, conversion therapy, for instance. Um, and so um, Joint List did incredibly well in 2020 with a kind of very big turnout um, in, the, uh, in the Arab community um, and a kind of pitch from the Hadash end um, of the party to kind of left-wing um, left wing Jews 
to vote for um, joint lists so that they could become involved in Israeli governance. Um, so that they could try and um, resolve some of these issues that have so afflicted the Arab-Israeli community um, and behave like, in a lot of countries, a, my, a party for, for people from a sizable minority would be a kind of typical government partner because, uh, um, because they're kind of eager to kind of work on the issues afflicting them. Obviously, that's very complicated in Israel because of the obvious can, um, implications of Arabic ethnicity in Israel, given both the internal and external conflicts. I think it's probably the <laughs> safest way to put it. Um, and, you know, they've been problematized and in the past, in 2016, a law was passed that was designed uh, that made it so that um, members of parliament, members of the Neset could be uh, impeached for racism and terrorism, which were clearly aimed at the Arab-Israeli community. As we discussed at the start of this podcast, that is, it's a widely received view that the raising of the electoral threshold was designed to hurt the Arab-Israeli parties. So while they want a seat at the table, it's a, it, it's a tricky situation because of the kind of wider divides. Um, and Netanyahu has problematized the Arab-Israeli population. So the 2020 campaign, for example, featured a lot of dog whistling about the idea that Arab-Israeli candidates, Arab-Israeli voters were turning out in sizable numbers. Um, you've got to vote um, for Bibi to stop the joint list having an impact on the government. Um, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, which, since then, he's then done a complete U-turn because he's Benjamin Netanyahu, and that's what he does. So first of all, um, so one of the big achievements of the last year of the um, Israeli government, um, which I think has been rightly applauded by almost everyone, is that they signed two peace deals with the United Arab Emirates and with Bahrain, which allowed for mutual recognition, trade, um, a, a bunch of other good stuff, which is good for the Arab Israeli population and, and good for Israel in general. Um, and on the back of this, Netanyahu started pitching himself directly at Arab Israeli voters. Um, so, uh, with a picture uh, literally turning up in Arabic towns to do rallies and to campaign, um, to um, with a very clear goal of uh, with uh, with basically a pitch of vote for Bibi because you can have a seat at the table in terms of just voting for the guys who are in power all the time and we'll do good stuff for you. Um, uh, and and that's clearly had an effect because a liquid vote has risen in in basically every single Arab town in Israel, albeit from often a very low base, but often by quite substantial amounts. Um, but it may also have been an aim to attempt to depolarize the joint list um, and to 
to to lower turnout amongst our Israelis with a sense of these issues now afflict us less. And also they pulled Ram, the most socially conservative party, out of the list, um, Abbas and Likud, uh, uh, Monsal Abbas, who is the leader of Ram, started appearing on, for example, um, a TV channel, which is very connected to Likud, and um, started talking openly about cooperation. Um, and eventually Ram left the joint list and decided to run its own. And this kind of has two potential benefits to Bibi, um, either in terms of maybe Ram falls below the threshold, which it almost did. It's actually the party closest to the threshold. Um, and therefore, and therefore there are less Arabs, uh, there are more wasted Arab votes, and therefore that helps Bibi and his allies. Or on the other hand, maybe Ram is a potential coalition partner, um, which um, since the election, um, Abbas has actually said that he is potentially willing to do business with Bibi. Um, uh, albeit, there's a lot of complicated issues there. So yeah, obviously we've touched upon quite a lot of these, um, the the many, many parties that make up the Israeli political scene. Um, some that we've not talked too much about is the Israeli left, which was historically um, incredibly important for Israel. I think if we'd been doing this podcast in 1971 rather than 2021, we would have been talking about Israel, this party system dominated by social Democrats and similar ways to which we would have talked about mm. Nordic countries. Um, this is really not the case anymore. Um, but uh, there's been a, like a, a moderately good election for the Israeli left parties, I'd say. Yes. Um, the merits was in the campaign. It seemed like it might fall below the threshold. We didn't actually gain two seats, got six now. And Labour was seen to be definitely kind of a, a dead force and yeah. wasn't going uh, back. Um, yeah, so, at, the start yeah. Of the, at the start of the election campaign, I literally thought this was going to be the one where Labour just finally fell out of Parliament, out of it altogether. Yeah, it's, mm. it's been a close run thing the last few, um, which is incredible considering that Labour is basically um, already descended from the party which founded Israel. And it, and then for many years was the dominant party yeah. of, of, of Israeli politics. And, and as recently as 2015 was the, um, the second biggest political yes. force as well. Um, but yeah, they got a new leader, um, Marav uh, Michele, um, who ran a quite a, a campaign which was seemed to be quite uh, sharply focused on uh, gender equality, which I think was sort of seen as a bit of a shibboleth for um, equality more generally. And it's yeah, this it seems to have caught on, and they yeah. crossed the threshold seven seats. Mm-hmm. Um, and and quite importantly, we we often think about the dilemma on the Israeli left is do I vote for Labour and which has more chance of being in the government and therefore but then the risk is um Moretz will might fall below the threshold. They both seem to have gained, which is which is quite good. And I think part of this has mm. been, as you've kind of already mentioned, the low turnout has helped some of the smaller parties. Um because obviously they have more they tend to have more sort of more committed. You need fewer vote you need fewer votes to get over the line, yeah. essentially. 
Yes. Um, mm. And they, yeah, and I think that there's a sense that in the previous three elections, some of these left-wing voters have been voting for blue and white as a kind of challenger to Netanyahu and yeah. maybe considering blue and white yeah. is completely splintered that they have come home. Um, the, the, uh, the horse race has kind of ended, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, then we have, we've already kind of touched on the Arab parties, I guess, the centre parties. We talked about um, Yelapid and, and Yeshatid a little bit. Um, he's, he's run, I think, what's generally regarded as a pretty good campaign and run a kind of balancing act where he has managed to rise to be confidently the, um, the largest opposition challenger, but at the same time has not forced Moretz and Labour below the threshold as well, um, which is they've mm. played quite, uh, quite uh, skillfully, ran a campaign um, focused on this idea of, of sane government, very obviously um, indicating that um, Netanyahu is the insane one. Um, and mm. yeah, they've, they've gained, I think, 70 yeah. Um, uh, albeit the kind of problem for the, the anti-Netanyahu bloc in terms of coalition formation because Lapid is very much disliked on the right and for those parties in the change bloc as it's being described making Lapid prime minister is for, um, possibly a bridge too far even if it's a even if it's a rotation deal yeah um, so, um, so yes, uh, he has run a very good campaign, but it's almost a problem for the change block that he's done so well relative to the other parties. Um, yeah. He, uh, um, yep, and then and then there's the remains of blue and white, um, Benny Gantz's personalist party. So, um, which uh, Gantz was a former general who entered politics essentially to. Uh, defeat Netanyahu, and, and but um, uh, while being incredibly credible on a security issue, because hey, he's a general, demonstrated himself very quickly. Uh, he demonstrated himself to be a neophyte when it came to politics, and and Bibi kind of ran circles around him because Bibi is the exact opposite of whatever in, of a neophyte, <laughs> um, um, and. Uh, yeah. But but they've they've managed to survive, which looked like as well it might be an I issue. The final polls showed it as being very possible that blue and white could slip below the line. Whether that's strategic voters or the low turnout, once again, mm -hmm. um, it's obviously a positive for the yeah the anti BB parties that I, um, I think the mm. Gantz will have learnt his lesson from this and will not be yes I don't think Benny Gantz is going to coalition again I don't think Benny Gantz is going to form another coalition with, yes. with Netanyahu and even if he did he wouldn't vote for the immunity law which mm. would mean that sooner or later Netanyahu would force another election again too <laughs> um, so I, I count four parties over the threshold of the kind of vaguely sort of secular um traditional right um liquid and then three other parties um two of which are very strongly anti-netanyahu um one of which is uh uh israel betanel which we've talked about quite a few uh lieberman yeah we probably we don't need to talk about them but again they've had a relatively muted campaign i would say yeah yeah they haven't they haven't re they haven't really changed in terms of their size. So. Yeah, they have a very stable voter base. So, like you say, it's very much that they have a 
a segment of the Russian-speaking population which always votes for them, and they're not really, um, they're not really yeah. one guy that goes up and down very much. Um, and then we have uh, New Hope, which was uh, founded by the, Bar, um, the, the Star Wars um, inspired yeah. party, as <laughs> a lot of people will say. Yeah. Um, so this is a really this this is almost the kind of prime example of how Netanyahu's very existence reshapes the Israeli party system. Um, New Hope is a um, is a party founded by former Likidnuks. Um, Gideon Saar is a former high ranking um, Likud politician. Um, he uh, he um, ran. He was an internal critic of Bibi. He ran against him in the leadership election. Likud loving Bibi as he did, uh, as they do. Um, Saar only got twenty eight percent of the vote in the internal leadership election, which yeah is telling about that party. Um, so with the corruption scandal looming, um, Saar went off and formed his own party with a bunch of people from across the spectrum in Likud. Um, some with very deep links to the party. I mean, one of them is the one of the one of the um, people that were high up on the list was the son of Begin, the um, first ever, uh, mm-hmm. the first Likud prime minister, and in many ways the party founder. Um, the the uh, one of um, Netanyahu's chief strategists went over. Um, a couple of people who'd been cabinet ministers, um, and a couple of um, and and some people who were like real up and comers. Um, so this was in many ways the kind of biggest threat to Netanyahu yet, um, because Saar is Saar and the people in New Hope are experienced politicians, and they can also basically claim to be Likud without Netanyahu. Um, but they had, I think it's fair to say, a very poor campaign. Um, they started off with a kind of lot of um, fireworks and then Netanyahu outplayed them by um, saying, oh, they're tools of the left, um, pitting them against other parts of the right, so forcing them to go rightwards. And also they made some own, some strategic mistakes of their own. So, for example, they hired the Lincoln Project guys from if in the US who um, ex Republicans who um, campaigned for Joe Biden by um, with very memorable ads. So the idea was that they were going to produce a kind of bunch of kind of anti Netanyahu ads about what a crappy human being he was, um, and then um, it turned out that um, Project Lincoln's one of Project Lincoln's founders had been accused of. A series of sexual harassment and uh, cases, and they ended up having to fire him. So all this stuff has left um, New Hope. It's actually one of the smaller parties in in the Knesset. Um, and the in the final result, um, it's actually oh yeah, and actually ended up with only six seats, and actually got um, only. S- slightly more votes than Moretz, which given that Moretz spent most of the campaign panicking about when it was going to still exist after the election is not exactly a commendation. 
um, for New Hope. Um, so that uh, so yeah, they they're left in quite a weak position. And then finally, finally, we should talk a little bit about Yamuna. This this party is led by Naftali Bennett, um, who was yeah, he was a former chief of staff to Netanyahu actually, and a lot of people kind of <laughs> it's it's sort of mentioned that he has this left him with a little bit of a complex kind of thing growing up in MVB's shadow and um, mm. he wants to be prime minister um and he leads this 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 party which is i think from a, a camp which would be described as the like as national religious or religious zionist um mm. was a, a yeah so although, although sort of yeah now. He, yeah he's been moving towards being a more secular presence <laughs> He himself is what's called modern orthodox, which is attempting to basically orthodox religious views, but designed to make accommodations with the modern secular world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he kind of od- occupies a kind of middle position on the, relig- on the religious spectrum. Is probably yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that... Um... While last year he, because last year he he didn't join the Netanyahu Gantz uh, national unity government, and uh, really focused on uh, corruption allegations and was kind of seen as a big challenger. I think that Netanyahu got people's votes from across the spectrum who would have kind of found him abhorrent on other vi- on other issues because they mm. believed that he could be a person to get rid of Netanyahu. Um, this kind of collapsed really and then they've only ended up really um how many how many seats did they end up they get set seven seats they ended yeah. up with in the end yeah and, and and part of that was the involvement of new hope because what new hope did was it allowed netanyahu to play saw and and bennett off each other um probably what they should have done is they should have tried to basically copy the blue and white um, strategy and unify and run mm-hmm. a kind of joint campaign. Um, but obviously that didn't happen and that allowed him to play them off each other. Um, and, and similarly with what happened to New Hope, uh, BB spent the election um, suggesting that Bennett was going to be a kind of taller left um when um lapid um went into prime position the whole line was oh well if you vote for someone who who might vote um for, to vote me out you're essentially voting for someone who's going to make lapid prime minister um so um bennett had to explicitly say first of all that he wasn't going to make Lapid prime minister under any circumstances, and then um, and then um, increasingly moved towards saying uh, occupying a kind of middle position where he was, where it seemed that he was w- much more willing to support a Netanyahu-led government. Um, so yeah, uh, once again. Another leader gets outplayed by um, Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah, um, and then well, the fo- yeah. yeah, I was going to say there is also the two religious parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism, but probably... which, we've, 
we've talked about them enough, I think. They also gained exactly the same number of seats each as they did in the previous election. So maybe it's not something to talk about in terms of too much change within this block. Yes, um, it's a demonstration that they have a very strong core vote yes. um, that turns out in sizable numbers, mm-hmm. um, despite their uh, uh, relative controversy in other areas. And then the last party, which is also, um, I want to say, is the worst party. Um, is yes, I think it's fair to say that pretty much everyone agrees that this is one one of the most unpleasant parties in yes, Israel. Yes, which was incredibly controversial in Israel. That uh, Netanyahu um, did this, which was he basically got these two quite extreme parties, um, one of which was um, kind of descent, so descended from the, um, in this, what is known as the uh, Khanist um, tradition in Israel, mm-hmm. um, which is a very, very far-right kind of Jewish supremacist um, ideology. And he mm. has encouraged yeah. them to form an alliance for this election. Yes, with uh, essentially some particularly extreme Haradi parties. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the original Kahanist party was in fact um, um, was in fact banned at one point. Mm. Um, so yes, this is a, a, an incredibly uh, controversial um, gathering, and 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 as you say, literally encouraged together. And it's an example as well. It's another example of how Netanyahu has shifted the um, party system because he has encouraged this alliance together because he is trying to minimize the number of wasted votes. The only thing that matters to him here ultimately is the fact that they will vote for the immunity law um, if they if they are pulled into a government. In typical times, Netanyahu would not be willing to contemplate working with people like this because obviously it has has risks on the moderate end of his coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not only that, bringing them into government will get roundly internationally condemned um, from from almost all of Netanyahu's major Western partners. Um, it's not something that will be uh, so it will create a sizable number of issues mm-hmm. for him, but they will vote for the immunity law, and that's yes. all that that's that's the thing that matters to him. And essentially, one of the things to remember about this uh, about the whole situation with Netanyahu and corruption is it's it's massively narrowed his not just the parties that will work with Netanyahu, but the parties that he wants to work with. Mm-hmm. Because if you're, because for example, he has done deals in the past with Yeshatid, he has done deals in the past with Blue and White, he has done deal, deals in the past with Labour even. Um, but none of those parties will vote for the immunity law. Therefore, even if you can form a government with them, he wants another election as soon as possible so he can find a majority that will. <laughs> yeah, so this is next to the situation where he's making these really, I mean, I think extreme right is completely warranted as a term here. Yes, um, I mean, we're, 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 I mean, radical right party, is it? It's definitely. I mean, even, I mean, it's possibly a little bit dramatic, um, but it's telling that even some commentators on the right 
have compared the the Kahanists to Hitler. <laughs> Which, if you're in Israel and people are comparing you to Hitler, um, is a particularly strong association, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these days they've, uh, although, yeah, so although um, the the two classical religious parties have not shifted in their seats, this, a lot of the kind of media attention on this campaign has been focused on their um on, on this on religious side, the religious Zionist party has focused on their attempts to win over uh, Haredi voters. And it does seem that them possibly, um, I think this may be the case that the low turnout is obscuring the fact that there has been a shift among younger Haredi voters towards uh, the religious Zionist party as a mm. kind of um, anti-establishment vote within that community as well yes um yes because as well as everything else we've talked about one problem that's going on within the heredity community is that shas in particular has become associated with corruption mm-hmm. um in and of itself which is also one driver another driver of the secular religious divide mm. too yeah um yeah. so yeah. where does this leave us we have the change block parties, so Yeshatid, Blue and White, Labour, Israel Better Now, Joint List, Moretz, New Hope, 57 seats. The BB supporting parties, Likud, Shas, United Torah Judaism, and Religious Zionists, 52. And then Yamina and Ram, who are not explicitly pledged to either of these, get 11 seats between us. Them. Um, so obviously, the change block is bigger than the BB block. Um, do you mm. see? chance of a a alternate government not headed by Netanyahu being formed from this or is it election five I mean I think it's election five to be honest I mean basically the problem that stands on on both of these uh, on both, for both of these blocks is that no matter what you do you are dealing with an incredibly broad-based Mm-hmm. A governing coalition. Now, in some ways, some ways, some of this stuff might be a bit easier than it initially appears. So, for example, um, not too long ago, under the advice of the excellent um, Jewish American political scientist uh, Matthew Sugart, the Israeli um, the the Israeli Knesset changed the way that votes of confidence are done in Israel. From uh, to be constructive votes of confidence. Now, for those who aren't familiar with what that means, basically, um, that means that instead of so in Britain, for example, if you have a vote in co- of confidence in Parliament in the government, it's an up-down thing. You either approve of the government or you don't. Um, in constructive votes of confidence, which are used, for example, in Spain. And in Germany, um, the you can vote no confidence in the government, but only by naming an alternative government. Mm-hmm. Um, so by so by doing that, it makes coalition formation a bit easier, particularly if it's a minority government, because if you can get a majority on the initial first vote, then it's harder to change out the government. Um, so that uh, so that for example does allow make it easier to imagine a government where 
um, Arab parties mm-hmm. um, sit outside the government and have a have a support role. Um, where, but nonetheless, despite that, in either situation to form a government, you are talking about um, having. So, so for Netanyahu, he would need the support of both Yamana and Ram. That means having a government that runs from an Arab-Israeli party all the way through to a party that, in the form of, of the Kahanists, um, believes that um, sizable numbers of Arab-Israelis should be literally expelled from the state. Mm-hmm. Um, that does not strike me as a stable governing coalition. Yeah, and that's assuming that Ram and Yamana will vote for the immunity bill as well. Mm-hmm. Which, even if the government of that type can be temporarily formed, they probably won't. Which means that at some point Netanyahu is going to try and collapse the government again. Yeah. <laughs> or later, oh, because otherwise, sooner or later, there's going to be a trial. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Or, or, the change block also very heterogeneous. Um, very heterogeneous. In some ways, things are a little bit easier because they can, in theory, form a government with either Yamana or Ram. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and in fact, um, in fact, um, in fact, Yamana has the has, could even be exchanged for the joint list. So if the if Ram is considered to be a kind of more moderate, easier partner, um, that that could even be done. However, you still then have a coalition that runs from through from Arab Israelis um, through um, Meretz, the party of the the peace camp, um, all the way through to parties. Who have traditionally been seen as more nationalistic than than Bibi. I I also have kind of I haven't had a chance to read too much into them since the election. I also have kind of I also wonder a bit about New Hope because New Hope has had such a such a bad election in the end, um, and because of the fact that they are former Likudnuks, whether they might whether there might be an attempt to reintegrate them into Likud mm-hmm. um, and whether that might then pose a, a stability problem for either the change block or, mm-hmm. or kind of wider issue. Um, it, yeah, so, yes, that's... An, albeit, albeit the tensions between those politicians are now really high and, mm. you know, and they they all know Bibi well enough to know that he's not someone to be easily trusted. Yeah. Um, but um, but yes, that 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 that's a, another element that I think is makes coalition negotiation tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I but I wouldn't put it past Bibi to try and come up with some third path to um, forming a government, whether it's. Um, bringing in um, new hope to expand his coalition negotiation, his coalition options, or or something like that. But all this stuff is incredibly difficult, and so I think probably the likeliest outcome is even if a government can be formed 
for a while and I and we've seen in this election in particular that Vivi is very good at using government formations to actually screw his own coalition partners um, and you, you set them up for future elections um, whether that can whether they can uh, um, it's, it seems unlikely that things will last so yeah so we'll see you all for the um, second 2021 Israeli election in, in about five or six months, probably. Institutionalize it as an annual event at this point. Yeah. Wasn't it the... The um, spirit of the Chartists. Yeah, I was about to say this, yeah. Yearly parliament, we can do this, it's fine. <laughs> Which is great for, great for people like us, not so great for the average person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, well, um, thank you all for listening. That has been an incredibly dense discussion of an incredibly complex, <laughs> incredibly complex country. And I'm very sorry to Jonathan, who's going to have to try and edit this best. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay, we'll see everyone next time. Yeah, thank you. live on air that I am now successfully registered to vote at my new address. Excellent. My vote in the London mayoral elections is coming up soon. Excellent. Uh, That's another vote for Sean Bailey, clearly.